Today's scripture is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a joy to be with you again this morning. I want to begin the message with the, uh, just an explanation of the uh, painting that you see. Those of you who are familiar with Van Gogh, uh, this painting is uh, called The Potato Eaters. Right? I'm a big Van Gogh fan, so um, you might see a lot of Van Gogh paintings in my messages. And, and what, what, what Van Gogh um, represented was a group of artists who saw the beauty in the common people. Quite radical in 19th century artwork. But Van Gogh uh, makes paintings, says it's one of his masterpieces where he shows the dignity of the common folk around the table. And the table is a symbol of their life together. It's the common table. And uh, it becomes a place of uh, community and uh, yeah, and connectedness, um, the work of their hands as they celebrate together what God has done in their lives. It's kind of like our table around the communion Sunday where we share a meal together. And uh, so, yeah, so Van Gogh, a little bit of art history there. So I think God loves artists. <laughs> Because artists seem to be able to put things together in ways that uh, nobody else uh, does. Well, we're continuing our, fr- our series uh, this morning on um, <clears throat> welcome and hospitality, reflecting on the many wet times we find Jesus eating with friends around the table. The table becomes an important metaphor for the expression of the gospel. In our scripture this morning, we find Jesus as the guest of Levi, who has now left everything to follow him. And he's enjoying a meal with Levi and his friends. Seems like an innocent enough, uh, uh, you know, action, but it becomes a tension between Jesus and the religious dealers of his day. Because by this time in Jesus' ministry, he was already attracting a lot of followers. Many began to follow him because they heard about his healing ministry in chapter 5, uh, verse 13. It says, news about him spread all the more so that 
Crowds of people came to hear him. People came to Jesus for various reasons. Um, some were just curious. They've heard rumors about him. Um, some were there to um, be healed because they've been injured or ill. Others were there just to listen for his, to his teaching. In his teaching ministry, Jesus not only helped folks expand the vision of God, but he was also gathering disciples, <laughs> men who would carry out his teaching and his requests. Up until now, this point in his ministry, his disciples were made up of uh, fishermen. Now, if there are any uh, thing like our West Coast fishermen, <laughs> Uh, they were people who were familiar with hard work. They were strong, tough men. But here, in this chapter, he chooses somebody completely different. Levi, a tax collector. Not the most loved folks in the Roman-occupied Judea. They were seen as dishonest and unscrupulous men who made their living off the misery of others. You can understand why the common people hated them so much. According to the society of that time, tax collectors and prostitutes, thieves, drunkards, uh, were all labeled uh, in the same social status. They were considered the low lives, the dredges of Palestinian society. So it's understandable that the polite society of the Pharisees and scribe would grumble his choosing of a tax collector not only added to their misgiving about Jesus, it only served to prove their suspicious, suspicion of him as a false teacher, an upstart, a blasphemer even. It's not the first time that Jesus has run, you know, uh, up against the establishment. Early in Luke chapter 4, we read that he was driven from his hometown after he claimed that he was the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. The their neighbors, his neighbor was so upset with him that they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Remember that part? So he had to leave his hometown. He moves to a town 20 miles uh, from Nazareth uh, in Capernaum and began and continued his preaching and healing ministries. His ministry was so effective that people came all over from Judea um, to hear him preach and brought their sick to be healed. And one of them was a paralytic man who was lowered by his friends through the roof of the house where Jesus was staying in chapter 5, verse 20. And Jesus says to this guy, Friend, your sins are forgiven. This caused an uproar among the learned theologians because they rightly understood that God alone could only forgive sins. And by saying to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, Jesus was declaring himself equal to God, or even God himself. So this is kind of the build-up to this particular moment in our text. By this time in our text, Jesus not only claimed equality with God, not only did he not choose people of character like themselves, but he chose men out of the riffraff, the common, unlearned, rough and tough fishermen. And here in our passage, a tax collector yet, the worst of the low lives in Judea. Not only did he not, not only did he choose a person of questionable character, Jesus accepts an invitation to party with him along with all his unsavory friends. Not so cool. 
not so cool in a culture of ancient Near East as sitting and having meal with folks conveyed that you accepted them. You accepted them. So it's not surprising that the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus associating himself with men like Levi, a low-life tax collector, and in their minds, traitors to their own people. Um, it's not the only time we read this word grumble. We, it comes up again in Luke chapter 5, um, verse 1 and 2. Right Now the tax collectors and sinners, uh, chapter 15 I should say, uh, gathered around him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws muttered or grumbled, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the Luke chapter 15 passage is kind of interesting because it springboards from there, the grumbling of the Pharisees, Jesus launched into his teaching about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And it's, a, it's an amazing text, really. The word appears again almost as a climax in Luke chapter 19 in the story of Zacchaeus, the chief of tax collectors. And uh, we will be examining that uh, more, in more details in a few weeks. What is clear about but hard to accept for these Pharisees is why Jesus gives two hoots about undeserving, unworthy folks like tax collectors, welcoming people of questionable character into his band of merry men. And it seems that even their obvious rotten track record right, has not excluded them from being accepted by Jesus. But Jesus made, gives uh, this reason for his unorthodox actions. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, the sinners to repentance. Now notice this, that Jesus does not excuse the behavior of these disreputable men and women. He admits that they're sinners, but he adds that they are sick. And the word translated sick is actually an idiom literally meaning to have to have badly, to fare badly, to be in a bad state, to be ill. And Jesus points out that there is a reason why these folks are the way they are. They didn't start up in life choosing to be the unpleasant uh, people that they were. Um, it's a sin-soaked world that has shaped them. Theologian uh, Orlando Costas, in one of his uh, talks regarding evangelism and mission, makes this comment. Men and women are not only sinners, but also sinned against. Believing that for many, an exposition of their sinned againstness is an important precondition to their receptivity to the message of their sinfulness. But sin againstness is seen nowhere more forcefully than in the cross. Incarnation that spells out God's complete identification with the oppressed. Here is the human and sensitive God, the God who sweats in the streets, and the God with a sun-scorched face. Psychologist um, Larry Crabb makes this uh, observation, that the sinful ways we respond to sins committed against us can be more damaging to us than those sins perpetrated on us in the first place. He says, certainly we struggle as victims of other people's unkindness. We have been sinned against. We're both strugglers and sinners, victims and agents, people who are hurting and people who harm. Henry Nouwen made this observation. 
much of the violence in our world is a desperately acting out of our wounded inner self. So perhaps that cantankerous old man is just a fearful, lonely boy. Or that manipulative person is simply afraid that no one could possibly love him or her. And that bully was actually bullied. And that abuser had been abused. Now, this is not to excuse people for their behavior. We're all responsible uh, for our behavior. Perhaps knowing that men and women are sinned against sinners, struggling through the same hurts, the same disappointments, the same sense of alienation as we have, might help us to be more understanding of the other. I think this is what Jesus was trying to get at with these Pharisees. Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus understood that one thing, these folks, these tax collectors, these others, inasmuch as they are, were sinners in need of repentance, they were also wounded folks in need of healing. So what do we, uh, what do we make, how do we make, what, what do we make of this story? And how much and how might we respond to this text this morning? There's a lot to tease out <laughs> from this text, but let me give you a few things that I, I've uh, I thought about. First, God uh, does not discriminate. The, God, the gospel message is inclusive of all. This, in, this indiscriminate nature of the gospel is taken up by Jesus in the many parables um, he told about the kingdom. The sower sows seed everywhere, even on hard ground. The parable of the dragnet, Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. The dragnet is a metaphor of the kingdom of heaven, picks up everything indiscriminately, everything in the world in humanity. Everyone, everywhere is included. The good, the bad, the rich, the poor, the fat, thin, the beautiful, the not so beautiful, every person in and every creation is dragged up in that kingdom dragnet. Everything, everyone, everywhere, every time is snagged up by this kingdom gospel. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to me. Come to me all, everyone who is, who is, who labor and is heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, everywhere, every time are invited. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful news? God does not discriminate, but freely offers his fellowship to anyone and, any, and all who are willing. And for us Baptists and evangelicals, we get this up here. Some, but sometimes we lose track of it down here in, the, in our hearts. Why does that happen? I think humanly speaking, at least I'll speak for myself, 
I am more like the Pharisees, right? At the heart level. And inasmuch as we, as I might dislike the response of these Pharisees, I think at the heart level, I am more like them than like Jesus. And the reason I believe is we are shaped by the competition the competitive world in which we are always trying to live up to the expectations of others, trying to measure up, trying to fit in, trying to win, trying to survive, to be accepted, to be loved. And the indiscriminate nature of the gospel is hard to grasp for people like us who like to draw lines on the sand, define who's in and who's out. Even as early uh, as elementary school, Children already learn which group they belong to. The jocks, the cool kids, the smart kids, the geeks, and the rest of us. We're pretty good at figuring out who belongs and who does not. But not very good at include, uh, finding ways to include. But Jesus sees past all the facades we put up to try and fit in, the trauma and the fear that have shaped our lives, living in a sin-permeated world. He sees us as that originally fearfully and wonderfully made child. And no matter how our lives have turned out, God refuses to belittle us. He refuses to shame us. He refuses to reject us, any of us, even if, we be, even if we belong to this group of unsavory tax collectors and countless unnamed sinners. Even that. And Jesus' inclusion of others should give us a clue of how we ought to interact with those who do not share our stories, those who are not familiar with our culture, those who communicate in a different language, those whose perception of the world might be very different than you and me. And let me say another thing, that this, this, this uh, interaction with others is hard to do from a distance. God is personal, right? He's personally involved in our lives. The gospel is an incarnational story. So we read here, and, uh, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining with them. Friends, I know, I know that in our busy, frantic lives, it's more expedient, for example, to send a text than make a phone call. I learned from my granddaughter the other day, well, not too long ago, she sent me a, a text and it says, INR. What in the name is INR? Well, we know I'm, I'm familiar with LOL, but INR, how many of knows that? How many of you know what INR means? You guys are all old. <laughs> There's a lot of this stuff, you know, INR, NGL, TTYL, right? Here's the great thing about modern communication. You actually don't have to communicate. <laughs> You just kind of abbreviate. Technology has given um, birth a whole new way of communicating without the need to really connect. Isn't that right? 
So it's not surprising that today people feel more isolated from others than ever before, though we have more ways to communicate. I was reminded of this uh, with my experience with an online, an online education. And by the way, I'm not against online education. It's an excellent way of allowing people who could not get to campus uh, access to quality education. Except that there are some experiences that cannot be duplicated online. Uh, I was teaching a course, CBM, Canadian Advanced Ministry, and Kerry um, uh, partnered a, a course, uh, launched a, a course in China, a pastoral ministry course. And we conducted most of our, our uh, teaching online. Nevertheless, for a few courses, I was able to arrange for our students most of them from central and northwest China, to have a face-to-face -face encounter in Hong Kong. And one of those classes involved a solitary prayer walk with guided reflections. Uh, while participating in this walk, I noticed a student who was gazing out at the ocean with tears in his eyes. And I approached him and said, if, asked if everything is all right. What's going on? Is everything okay with you? See, most of our, our students served in the interior and in small villages, um, in places people, very few people would go to, I think. His, his tears are streaming down his eyes. And I said to him, He Guang, what's wrong? He said to me, I've never seen the ocean. I've never seen the ocean. I didn't realize how beautiful it was, it is. This experience reminded me that certain things cannot be replaced digitally and must be experienced in person. The gospel to be fully experienced is embodied in a person. In the life of Levi, Jesus was fully present for him and his friends. And St. John puts it this way, and the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We just can't <laughs> improve on God's methodology of evangelism. It's close, it's personal, it's incarnational. Lastly, God is in the business of renovating lives. It's the gospel is transformation. My son is a carpenter. I'm amazed sometimes at what he sees. <laughs> He can go into an old falling apart house and visualize what it could be. He's good at what he does, building and renovating, renewing the old, the broken, the useless into something beautiful, useful, livable. And I sometimes wonder if Carpenter Jesus uses the same kind of imagination as he looks at our sin against broken lives. Not so much what is, but what it could be. I think that's the difference between the Pharisaic and divine imagination. The Pharisees looked at these folks and 
And all they saw were low lives, losers, nobodies. No self-respecting rabbi would get their hands dirty with the likes of these people. But Jesus saw the possibility of redemption, of renewal. And it seems that God likes or loves a challenge. He often chooses those who are the least in society, failures, losers, people who did not amount to much to carry the day. We see this over and over again in the stories of the Old Testament. I'm reminded of a story with, with David's flight from Saul. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 22, we find David held up in the caves of Adullam, located 13 miles west of his hometown, Bethlehem. There in the caves, he was joined by his congregation, of which Samuel describes with this, these words. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader, about 400 men with him. And Eugene Peterson makes this comment. I love his, his uh, reflection on this. He says that this is the sociological profile of David's congregation, peoples whose lives were characterized by debt, distress, and, disc and discontent. It isn't what we would call the cream of the crop of Israelite society. More like dregs from the barrel, misfits all, it appears. The people who couldn't make it in regular society. Rejects, losers, dropouts. But in the large context in which this story is placed, God working his salvation out among those who need to be saved not only permits, but requires that we see David's moral and socially ragged man as an embryonic holy people of God. We must stretch our imaginations to the horizons of God's sovereignty and see that David's company, even though made up of distress, the debtors, the discontent was made by God. A people defined not by where they came from or what they did, but what God did in and for them. God's ways are not our ways. He often chooses the least, the lost, the last in our world to accomplish his work. We could never in our wildest imagination uh, think that people like the Hebrews of ancient Middle East or the malcontents that followed David in the cave of, in Adullam or a cheating lowlife like Levi, tax collector, would be the ones that God would choose to work through. And yet in the mystery of God, it seems it is so. And Levi will become Matthew, Right? the evangelist, author of one of the four gospel records of Jesus' life. And I suppose the church is the best example of this. Peterson's translation helps us to see how incredible and incredulous the church is. In 1 Corinthians, this is a, uh, chapter 1, he says to the Corinthian church, he says, take a look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest or the best among you. 
not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately choose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chooses those nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? Empires have come and have gone. But this group of nobodies, we're still here. Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah. Nobodies are still here. I know there's so much more to glean from this story, but we just don't have enough time to kind of pull everything out. I just remember those three things. Well, let me give you one suggestion of how to maybe live into it. Find a way make, to make someone feel like a somebody this week, right? Make an effort to invite that thorny friend, that estranged relative, that person whom you've wanted to see but haven't made time for to share a meal with you. Spend time, listen to their stories. And it might be awkward, <laughs> but it may also be life-giving and transformational. The gospel is inclusive. It's personal. And it's transformational. And this is great news, not just good news, great news. And God wants you in on it. God wants us in on it. Isn't that amazing? May the Lord lend his courage and generosity of heart as you minister to someone who's been left out or wounded or simply needing a listening ear or a warm embrace. Amen. We pray. Let's pray. Father, I know this, uh, these gospels messages are so challenging to us. We just simply are unable, really, to carry out all that you have for us. But you're able, Lord, to do in us what we're unable to do in ourselves. So I pray for each person here in this congregation right now that you would fill us with your spirit, your spirit of generosity and hospitality, and that each one of us this week might in some way bring healing in the life of others. Commit it all to you, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.